All right, John chapter 7 is, uh, is where we're going to go today. We're working through this whole book of John. Uh, some weeks we've taken a small section and really analyzed the dialogue. Now this week we're going to bite off a big chunk, almost all of chapter 7. Um, so let's, let's try this. Let's start here. If you grew up in church, or let's, let's say you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, the phrase or the idea of having Jesus live in your heart, that's not foreign to you. But imagine what that would be like if you had absolutely no exposure. Wait, Jesus, in my, in my heart? Like if you were just a literalist, that would sound crazy, right? For us, the idea that God lives within us isn't a foreign concept. Well, Jesus is going to introduce this idea of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in the world living inside of our soul. He's going to introduce this at a time when no one had any concept of that. And he's going to sound like a crazy person. Most of the people are going to think he's buck, buck nutty, not the thing I just said. They're going to think he's buck nutty, uh, and some of the people are going to believe. This is going to be really polarizing. It's going to push them in two opposite directions. Now, he's going to start to talk about this idea of being governed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. No one knew what he, he was talking about. But in Galatians 5, Paul lists for us what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are the necessary outcomes of having God's spirit in your life. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fingers help. Uh, I think I got them all. I think I got them all there. Now, here's the thing you have to know. These are the necessary outcomes of having God's spirit living inside of you. Uh, you think about what grows on an apple tree. Necessarily, apples grow on it. These are the things that take shape in the life of a person who surrendered themselves to God, who has God's spirit living inside of them. Jesus is going to call them in this section. He's going, to, he's going to refer to that as a spring of living water within. And the great news is he says it's for everybody. Everyone who believes, it's for you. As I look at that list right there, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if I had those things in my life, It'd be a good day, regardless of what's happening around. I mean, that's a good day. That's a good life. And he said, it's for you. It's for you. This is the necessary outcome of having God's spirit in your life. It requires surrender on your part, but it's for you. So I had a, I had a best friend growing up when I was in junior high and high school. Uh, his name's Jim. Solid guy. Loyal, generous friend. Uh, just, just a very faithful friend and a high character guy. Had a really strong moral compass. Uh, my life was better for and I got in less trouble because of my relationship with Jim. I'm very thankful for him. We argued passionately about one foundational critical element of life. The color of the UPS truck. <laughs> for years. I mean for years. And I understand it better now because Jim's colorblind. And I'm sure there's frustration that comes. Maybe you know this if you are colorblind. There's some level of frustration from seeing the world differently than everyone else. Uh, I didn't get that at the time. I just thought he was an idiot. Uh, but we argued sometimes, like, really passionately about the, about the color of the UPS truck, like legitimate anger. Until one day, you may remember this, in the late 90s, UPS came out with a new slogan. And it was a question. At the very end of the commercial, we're sitting in his living room, pops up on the screen, what can brown do for you? And the level of satisfaction in my soul <laughs> through the roof. 
And Jim said one word, which was an expletive, and I can't repeat it right now or ever. And we never spoke of it again. Not once. I, if I saw him today, I would not bring it up. It was that, it was that tense. And uh, it was so funny how something as dumb as the color of the UPS truck can just be so polarizing. Like, we actually came close to like, not being friends anymore because of the color of the UPS truck. So imagine if it was something that actually mattered, like the difference between living for God based on the law and being governed by the Spirit of God. Imagine if it was something that actually mattered, like changing your entire worldview. That's going to happen right here. Jesus is going to polarize the crowd. He's going to begin to divide the crowd. And if you remember last week, uh, there was a whole bunch of people that have followed Jesus, and he came up with this really great uh, phrase. He said, if you want to be part of the kingdom, I'm just going to need you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. No big deal. And people were like, what are you saying right now? And so what we saw was there was basically three camps, right? There was the religious leaders who hated Jesus. There was the disciples who were devoted no matter what. And then this this other group of people who were kind of following him because they liked the cool stuff he did. They got some free food out of it. They thought the miracles were amazing. This group all of a sudden went, yeah, I think we're over here with these guys. We're, they left, and only the, the original disciples were still following Jesus. It's similar to what our society has been like over the last few decades. We talked oftentimes in terms of the idea that the church is like mm, in free fall. Uh, the statistics actually suggest something else. There's a guy named Ed Stetzer. Uh, he's a... Uh, a, uh, an instructor, uh, professor at Wheaton College, he also heads a group called the Lifeway Research Group. And they did this study uh, about the trend in Christianity in North America, and the findings were really interesting. They basically divided all of our nation into three different groups. You had the convictional Christians. These are, these are the people, like us, who orient their life around following Jesus. I was, I was trying not to smile when I, when I said that. Uh, these are the people who are actually following Jesus. Like, there's evidence in their life that they're following Jesus. It constitutes about a third of our society. People who, um, they don't just necessarily, like, go to church and think you should be a good person, uh, but they've actually oriented their life around following Jesus. And then on the other side, you had the nonce, people who identify as not Christian. Well, in the middle, they had another group that they called uh, the cultural Christians. These are people who think, well, who, you know, their belief system is built around the idea that I should be a good person, God will like me, uh, I should probably go to church, I should probably have like moral uh, Christian standards in my life. But there's not a lot of evidence that says Jesus is actually my Lord. So what they've found has happened in our country over the last three to four decades is that uh, this group has basically stayed about the same by percentage. But the middle group, a certain section of them have just sort of dropped the pretense and went, yeah, I'm not actually a Christian. So that middle group has kind of moved over here. But the question is, were they actually following Jesus in the first place? It's not my job to judge that. But, uh, but that's what's happening right here with Jesus. The middle group has kind of shifted over toward, toward the nonce, kind of begun to make that movement. It's really similar to what, uh, to what we see. And I would encourage you with this. Jesus is in the middle of the reality that not everyone is going to agree with him. Even if you could walk on water and miraculously feed people bread and heal sick people, there would still be people who didn't love what you were doing and saying, and you know what? It's okay. It's okay if not everyone agrees with you. It's okay if you believe something different. You know, sometimes we carry this burden, like I have to do everything right and convince everyone. That's, that's the Holy Spirit's work. It's okay if people disagree with you. You, you follow Jesus. That's, that's the way to go. 
so take that pressure off if you're, if you're feeling that. Jesus has several groups uh, who they like what he's doing. They like him maybe even, but they don't necessarily believe that he's the son of God. God bless you. And the first group that would be so deflating, I would imagine, is his family. His family doesn't necessarily believe in him. John 7, verse 1, this is what it says. Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Now, just take that little piece of information that the Jewish leaders were trying to, looking for a way to kill him. Just file that away because that's an important backdrop to the rest of the narrative. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told him, my time is not yet here. For for you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that his works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So here's how this this works. Jesus has younger siblings, right? You probably are familiar with the story. Uh, uh, Mary conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Immaculate conception. Jesus is born. But then Mary and Joseph got married and they had other children. Jesus is the only one conceived supernaturally. The rest happened the old-fashioned way. And he grew up in this household. And uh, he has siblings. Now, if you have a sibling, one thing you are absolutely certain of is that they are not God. There is nothing they could do to make you believe that they're God. Even if they could do miracles, you would just think, wow, that was cool. You're really special. Not God, but special. Nothing, Nothing they could do would make you believe they're God. Well, this is Jesus' burden. Even his own brothers don't believe in him. Now, I think this is one of the best evidences for the idea that Jesus is actually who he says he is. Because what we see in the narrative right now is that his brothers, they don't believe that he's God. Fast forward two years later to the book of Acts, we see his brothers actually worshiping him as God. Uh, Something changed. In fact, two of his brothers, Jude and James, actually wrote books of the Bible. Three historians, uh, Josephus, Hegesippus, and Clement of Alexandria, if you can spell two of those three, I will give you some kind of a reward. Uh, They're not biblical authors, they're historians. Three of them actually record how James died, Jesus' half-brother James. And uh, here's the deal with James. You might remember this because we we went through through the whole book of James uh, about a year ago. James gained gained a really cool nickname. He became known as James the Just because of his integrity. Uh, I have nicknames. One of my good buddies, he's a pastor too, he calls me Kells Bells, which is uh, a euphemism for the ACDC song, Hell's Bells, so the irony there is pretty thick, right? Uh, that's a cool nickname. It's a sign of his affection for me. I love that, I appreciate that. Uh, but James the Just, that goes down in history. I mean, if, just imagine if you were like that solid of a character that people just put the just after your name. And 2,000 years later, people are still talking about it. That's how you know James is a solid guy. Well, this group of religious leaders, um, you know, they've had enough of Jesus. They crucify him, raises from the dead, and ascends back to heaven. And uh, they're, they're happy. He's gone. He's out of the way. The problem is uh, this movement of Christianity is on the rise, and James is one of the most outspoken people. 
And they're thinking to themselves, great. The guy who's got the loudest voice is known as the just. Like they're going to believe us as versus James the just. So they want to get rid of him now, right? Their problem is just bigger than it was before. And uh, so they threaten James' life, historians tell us. And rather, rather than simply saying, okay, I'm wrong about Jesus, James chooses death. That's how you know you're sure. So what could make him go from right here, where they're actually mocking Jesus, if, if the language is kind of clumsy, but what they're saying is, oh, why don't you go out in public and do something if you're trying to make this, you know, you're this important guy from heaven, why don't, you, why don't you go do something in front of everyone? How did James go from mocking Jesus to all of a sudden choosing death over denying that Jesus is God? Well, a resurrection might convince you. you know, I think it's one of the best, one of the best evidences for for the resurrection, the fact that his brothers, they don't believe. And Jesus does this really wise thing. What's his reason for not going up to the festival? What does he say? My time has not yet come. How often do I have an idea and then stop to think, is this what God wants me to do right now? Like, is this God's timing? Uh, most of the time, if I have an idea, I either forget it immediately or I act on it immediately. But Jesus, Jesus is waiting. He's listening for God's voice. Might be something to pray about in your own life, something to, something to chew on. Next verse, verse 10, it says, However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? And among the crowds, there was also widespread whispering about him. Some said, He's a good man. And others replied, No. He's a liar. He deceives the people. But no one would say anything about him publicly for fear of the leaders. Here's what's interesting. Everybody in this scene is afraid of something. The people are afraid of the leaders, which, by the way, makes them not really leaders. People are pacifying them by doing what they want, but they're not actually following them. A little leadership tip there for anybody who might need it. The people are afraid of their leaders, and the leaders are afraid of losing their power. But of all the people in this scenario, who's the one person who actually has a reason to be afraid? Jesus, right? He, he, he knows there's people trying to kill him. And yet, he's the only person who's not afraid. He's listening for God's voice. He's armed with the knowledge of God's will. And then he marches right into the situation and says what needs to be said. Uh, I mentioned this, I think, last week. The, uh, the directive to be not afraid, fear not, do not fear... Uh, is the most commonly given directive in the Bible. Nearly 150 times, God tells his people, don't be afraid. Uh, ironic that Jesus is the only one who's not. And I think a good lesson for us to take away from that is that living in fear will suck the joy out of every corner of your life. Have you ever noticed that? Being afraid, being apprehensive, being worried, it'll take the joy out of everything. You can't enjoy anything else in life. But what did we read uh, in the gifts of the Spirit. The second one was joy. When, we, when we're guided by fear, we're effectively giving that joy away. Uh, I mentioned this verse last week, Nehemiah 8.10, uh, a verse that I have repeated out loud to myself no less than 12 million times. Okay, maybe a little bit less. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Uh, your translation may say, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Uh, for me, I sort of skip the future tense part, and I'm like, no, I kind of need that now. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And you know what's funny when I remind myself of that? Uh, it's amazing how well that works. It's amazingly effective uh, to lean on the joy of the Lord for my strength 
In fact, what I've found is that when I'm leaning on anything else, I'm leaning on something that will eventually not be able to hold the weight. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Remind yourself that early and often. The joy of the Lord belongs to you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Don't let fear take it away. Verse 14, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So he's making a public appearance halfway through this week-long festival. The Jews there were amazed, and they asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? How did he learn all of this? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. I have, uh, I have a degree in theology, and here's what's not going to happen. Someday when this life expires and I stand before God, he's not going to say, I see that you are formally trained in theolo- theology. I could really use your help. Welcome to the kingdom. That's not what's going to happen. He's, it's going to be something more along the lines of, you're kind of an idiot, and I'm only letting you in because of Jesus. <laughs> And I'm going to say, works for me, and I'm going to sprint through the gate as fast as I can. Probably exactly like that, but it's going to be closer to that than it is the first thing. Let's put it that way. Uh, We have a tendency to either underestimate uh, our usefulness to God or way overestimate our usefulness to God. Now, I want to just share an encouragement with some of you, but you're going to have to decide which of these categories you're in, so I'm trusting you to make a good judgment there. Some of you need to know that you don't have to have a degree to be used of God. You don't have to have special training. What you need to have is humility and wisdom. That's that's what you need. You don't have to have special training. Jesus makes the point that he had none. His disciples had none. You don't have to be specially trained. Now, beware of thinking you're overly qualified. Beware of thinking you, you know more than what you do. We don't want to put words ever in God's mouth. But Jesus, we see him right here, He's humble and he's wise. If anyone had a reason to not be humble, it's Jesus, right? There's this this author. She's a Christian author and speaker. Her name's Jen Hatmaker. Probably some of you have read some of her books. Uh, Really good stuff. I love her. Uh, She writes a lot of books for women, so I'd encourage you to read her stuff. Very uplifting, and she's hilarious. Well, she gave this tip that I think is, is practical advice you could apply to any situation. She specifically, when she said this, is talking about like the race to be super mom, right? Uh, to like be the most popular person on Pinterest and do everything well. Uh, but it applies to any situation. She said, we need to stop trying to be awesome and start trying to be wise. Is there a scenario in life in which that's not good advice? Stop trying to be awesome. If anybody wanted to be awesome, it was Jesus, right? He just like two days before this, he healed people, he fed people. Uh, supernatural bread. I mean, if anybody could do something awesome, it's him. But he's not concerned about that. He chose to be wise, to execute God's will for his life. And this conversation is like the perfect segue into uh, the meat of his dialogue with these people. So, so here's what you need to know. Uh, they're really frustrated. The religious leaders are frustrated with Jesus, obviously. They want to kill him. And the catalyst for that was the fact that he had, uh, I know this is going to be really offensive to some of you, he had healed someone on the Sabbath. 
I know, I know, right? What a jerk. Uh, so, so here's the deal. It's, this is, there's some context you just got to get your head around, okay? So you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments. Uh, most of us uh, probably couldn't rattle them off in order. Uh, I'm not even going to try because I'm sure I'll stumble right now, but you've probably heard of them, right? The Ten Commandments were ten laws or ten directives that God gave to Moses after he led the people out of captivity in Egypt uh, that would govern the people. Now, you've got to think to yourself, I don't know how many laws we have in our country, but you know, thousands upon thousands. There's an endless list of things you can't do. Uh, but you've got to go like, ten? I could do that. Like, ten? It can't be that hard. Um, apparently, it's harder than we thought. But theoretically, I say theoretically because it didn't happen, if they could adhere to these ten rules, they theoretically would measure up to God's standard of perfection, and they would be in perfect community with God, and their life would be blessed. Uh, God would protect them and provide for them. That's, that's all he said under the law was just, just do these ten things, and, and we'll be good. It will go well for you. Uh, but they couldn't do it. The third commandment was to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And the Sabbath comes from the creative order. God created for six days. He rested on the seventh. The seventh is the Sabbath. And he says the third commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's, uh, that's one of their like, core, core beliefs. Now, the point of the Sabbath is not that uh, the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe was tired after six days, so he needed to take a day off from being God. Obviously, that's not a reasonable thing to think. The point of the Sabbath was that he was establishing the rhythm that we would live in. That's why we have a seven-day week in our current society. Uh, God was understanding of the fact that if we just got on the hamster wheel and kept going, we'd be miserable. We'd be physically, spiritually, emotionally, and in every other way, unhealthy. Sabbath, third commandment. God established it for our protection. Well, here's where it gets, gets really sticky, is that uh, Jesus was doing work on the Sabbath. And the problem runs deeper than the fact that he just broke that command. The problem is he claims to be from heaven. So they're saying, okay, you say you're from heaven, but you're breaking the third commandment. It's not just that you're breaking the third commandment. It's also the hypocrisy that you say you're from, from heaven. So this is the dialogue that they have. It says in verse 19, Jesus is talking. He says to them, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Effectively, he says, oh, so I'm not allowed to heal people on the Sabbath. I can do that on like Friday or Sunday, but not Saturday, because we save Saturdays for plotting murder. <laughs> Turns out there's a commandment against that one, right? It's, sometimes the Bible is sort of funny. I don't know if he was trying to make a joke there. I mean, I'm thinking he probably was, but, but it just reads funny. Well, their response is like borderline ridiculous. The next verse, they respond to him. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Why are you, who is trying to kill you? Have you ever like pinned somebody on the point and they had no way out and they just responded with something like, you're dumb. <laughs> they respond by calling him a name, calling, telling him he's demon-possessed. No one's trying to kill you. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, although actually it didn't come from Moses, it came from the patriarchs, because Moses gave you circumcision, circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. That's work. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, then why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances 
and judged correctly. Circumcision is a weird one. Okay? It's, uh, they started out with 10 laws, and then there was a whole bunch more. It ended up there's 613 of them. So like, try, to keep, try to keep that list. Um, circumcision is, an, is kind of an odd one. Effectively, circumcision served this function. It was like a mark or a seal or a distinguishing characteristic that set God's people apart from all of the other people on the earth. I can think of different marks, but it wasn't my decision. It was about my pay grade. And so the law of Moses was that all Jewish boys had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, there's just one problem. What if the eighth day is the Sabbath? Now you got to decide, well, which one of these laws are we going to break? Are we going to work by doing this circumcision on the Sabbath? Or are we going to wait till tomorrow and do it on the ninth day? So Jesus is like pinning them in this logical paradox. His, his point is, if you've decided that you can treat one part of the body on the Sabbath, then what's your justification for being upset with me for healing someone's entire body on the Sabbath? And the point he makes is, you're so married to the letter of the law, you've completely ignored what the law was created for in the first place. Jesus is pinning them down, and this is the point where some people start to believe that Jesus is a prophet sent from God. Some people will start to believe that he is God, that he really is the Messiah. And what happens is, he pins them in this paradox, and so the Jewish leaders, they just don't say anything. They don't respond, which actually was probably a pretty good idea. Otherwise, we'd have more jokes to make about their response. <laughs> but what happens is the people are like, oh, why aren't they responding? Like, maybe they think he is the Messiah. And, and the, the crowd sort of starts to split down the middle. People who believe, people who are nons. They're anti-Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of bickering about this about the law, the religious law of God that governed the people. And Jesus' life happened at a time where the people were really committed to the letter of the law. The Sabbath is a good example. Um, they understood, like, the Sabbath is for rest and worship. Uh, but they wanted to go one up on that, and they just made a whole list of things that constitute work. We can't do those. And a whole list of things that constitute rest and worship. We, we have to do those completely ignoring the spirit of the law. But what's the point of the Sabbath? Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, that the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for your benefit, not for God's benefit. It's not just another way that God wants you to jump through hoops. Because think about what would happen if God had never established the Sabbath. Would we ever take time to rest? Probably not. Would we ever have a day that we were committed to worshiping God? to getting together with our church community uh, to worship God for who he is? Would, we, would that happen if the Sabbath hadn't been established? Probably not. Uh, I wouldn't do it. You know, I'd still be just on the wheel doing the things that I need to get done. God created it for their benefit and protection, not for them to lord it over other people. And Jesus right here, uh, we're just going to read a couple more verses. Jesus is going to introduce a new era, a new way of relating to God a new way of relating to the law, where we, we live under the governance of the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, where the law actually serves to uh, fulfill God's purpose in our lives rather than keep us inside the boundaries. So this is the part that I, I really want you to grab onto. Verse 37, down the page a little bit, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
Rivers of living water will flow from within them. And John clarifies, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And we see them receive that in Acts chapter 2, if you, you want to look into that. For those people who were ruled by the law, what happened was their religion just became handcuffs. It was just a list of rules that were meant to suck the joy out of their life and make sure they didn't do anything wrong. Their souls were dry. They were very dutiful in their, uh, in their religion. They lived very fear-based in their relationship to God. Uh, life was kind of about the idea that I better not screw up or God will smite me somehow. But Jesus says the law is actually meant to give life, not take it. Come to me and receive living water. Now, I've certainly been there as it pertains to my faith. I've been tired uh, in faith and just in general in life. I've been tired. I know you have. I've been bored just, on, you know, just going through the motions, just taking it around the horn day by day. Uh, I've been there. I, I can understand that. Uh, we, at times, I think most of us kind of get sucked into, I guess, what we might call the American dream. Keep working, keep saving, keep building, and then someday things will be awesome, right? We're just... We're just working towards someday, wherever someday is. I think most of us can kind of get a sense of what that's like. Most of us have been there. But here's the reality. I already know what someday has for me. Someday, I'm going to be with Christ in his presence for eternity. I don't need to worry about someday. Jesus is bringing the spirit of God for today and tomorrow and someday. But he's bringing life Today, he's not, saving, he's not saying, just keep storing up good works so that someday God will have to let you in. He's not saying that. He's saying, God will, God's going to dwell with you today. He's going to live inside of you. That might be terrifying if you're four years old and you have no context for God living inside. But he's saying, the Spirit of God wants to give you ongoing life if you'll surrender. Jesus is bringing in an entirely new era. And that brings us back to the outcome of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a good day. That's a good, good life. Jesus has accomplished that for you. He says it's available to everyone who trusts in me. If your life is filled with those fruits, you're going to love your life. And the great thing about it is it's not conditional on the circumstances. Uh, you can have peace even when the financial situation is upside down. Uh, you can be kind even when that person doesn't deserve for you to be kind. It's not, it's not contingent on your circumstances. It's contingent on Jesus paying the bill. Uh, that's an anchor for the soul, for sure. So I want to, just, I want to close our time with this thought. Um, sometimes we sort of blend the idea of spiritual, uh, the fruit of the Spirit with the idea of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit are something different. It would be like, uh, for example, like the gift of healing. Uh, I know people who God works through them. They pray for people with physical ailments, and they're healed. Uh, that's all God. Like, they're just somehow in between, like in the way between what God's doing and the other person. That's, that's a gift of God or prophecy. Some people have the, the ability to pray for someone, and God will give them a word to go and speak to this person. And that person is like, how did you know that? Some people have that gift. The fruit of the Spirit are a little bit different. These are the things that grow in our life once we allow the Holy Spirit to come in. 
once we surrender to who God is. These are the things that necessarily will grow in a life that is surrendered to the will of God. Jesus said, the spirit is for all who put their trust in me, all who believe. These are the fruits that grow naturally. The Holy Spirit builds them in our lives. So I'm gonna give you a challenge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to do something this week. Um, and here's what I love about this. I think there's a good chance that this will serve as uh, actual, legitimate, tangible proof of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you'll, if you'll do this. Okay, so I shortened it into a phrase, and then I'll, uh, I'll try to explain it. What I want you to do this week is don't react until you've prayed. Don't react until you've prayed. Now, I made it really short so you could remember it, uh, but let me tell you what I mean by that. In any situation that's frustrating uh, or a situation where someone... Uh, is discouraging you or making you angry um, or you get that letter in the mail and you're like, how am I going to pay that? Uh, Whenever you have despair or discouragement or frustration or anger, this is what I want you to do. Don't respond. Ask God to show you how to respond. You don't have to take 10 minutes to do that. Take 30 seconds. Take 30 seconds before you have a response and see if it's the same as what your initial knee-jerk reaction was. My guess is it probably won't be, uh, but here's what I, I have seen in people's lives. Um, certainly, this, I've experienced this in my own life. When I'll listen to the Spirit, my response will be totally different. But think of maybe somebody you've known in the past who was quite a bit older than you, and they were, they were following Jesus. You just kind of view them as like a wise old saint. You know, there was legitimate evidence in their life that they loved the Lord, and they really wanted to be like Jesus. Did they have these things in their life? My guess is probably love, joy, peace, patience. My guess is they probably did. And I'm sure that if you'll take a moment before you respond and ask God, work through me, show me how to respond by your spirit, that your response will be different than it would be naturally. So I'm going to give you that challenge to do that, uh, to do that this week. And, uh, and then next week, you can come back and eat some cow. How about that, Gary? <laughs> All right, let me pray for you guys, and we're going we're gonna to head out. Uh, Lord, thank you that you have not just uh, come to just give us a new set of rules or a better set of rules, uh, but that you've come to dwell with us, to walk with us through every situation, that through your death and resurrection, we are in ongoing relationship with the Spirit of God because of Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us this week how to live under your instruction, God, how to, um, how to live a life filled with the fruit of the Spirit. God, for for our own good and for your glory, I pray you'd work that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. I hope I'll see you next Sunday. And uh, be sure and give Pastor Rick a hard time about not being here this week. And uh, it'll be fun. So come prepared to eat.